Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Okay, if I may have your attention... My name is Terry Shellington. I'm the moderator today, and I want to welcome you all warmly on behalf of the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Um, If you have cell phones, I'd ask you to turn them off at this point. Um, And uh, I don't know what to say about standing room only because I don't know whether you're eating, but people around tables need to put $10 in the basket for each person, and, and somebody at each table should... Kind of count the score and make sure when their ta- baskets are picked up that uh, that they have the right uh, number in it. You know, SACPA is a volunteer organization supported by donations, and uh, and we welcome membership. And you can see membership cards out there, and you may want to um, to pick up one of those brochures. We really appreciate our partners that uh, make these events possible with some kind of order and uh, structure, and that's the University of Lethbridge, and uh, Country Kitchen Catering, who are, again today, being very flexible with us, and uh, also Shaw TV, who who carry this broadcast uh, Sundays at 4.30 uh, p.m. Um, there, let me just tell you briefly the structure of this uh, thing, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, we'll take about half an hour for the two presentations, and uh, then about the same amount of time for lunch, and then we're into a question and uh, comment period after that. So, about three di- different segments. So, uh, the issue today is abortion, and I don't intend to introduce that subject. I think we all understand something about it. Um, I'm really thankful for the two presenters. Um, the first one is Micah Rosendahl, who's a, a spokesperson for uh, pro-life and, and a parent in her own right. And uh, the second speaker is uh, Bryson Brown from the Philosophy Department of the University, and uh, Bryson is also a parent. So, without any further intro, and with apologies to people who are scrambling at the back, uh, I'd like to invite Micah to present. Thank you, Terry. Um, Before I begin, I would like to point out that there are surveys on your table if you haven't taken one, Um, and the surveys will ask you to fill out, um, you know, to give me an idea about what you thought about the presentation, but the first section is uh, for before the presentation, so this would be a good time to fill that out. Um, In 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada overturned the abortion law that we had because, as they said, it uh, prevented women from having equal access to abortion across the country. So this overturned the 1969 law, but the Supreme Court did say that Parliament was allowed to make legislation regarding abortion. But as we know, that never happened. So because of that, abortion is legal during all nine months of pregnancy in Canada, and um, the result is approximately 300 abortions per day, and 100,000 abortions per year in Canada alone. Nonetheless, the issue has um, never died down, obviously not, because of all of you are here today, and abortion is still very much up for debate. So I welcome the opportunity to present the pro-life position here today and to engage in respectful dialogue about this important issue. 
In the next 10 minutes, I will make a scientific case for the humanity of the preborn, um, that they are human like you and I. And after that, I will make a case for their personhood, that they are not only humans, but only also persons and should be recognized as such also by law. But before I do that, I would like to address some of the very difficult circumstances that women face that may cause them to consider or even undergo abortions. Women may be in, women may be in um, situations that we cannot even imagine. So I think it's very important that we convey empathy and concern and that we provide support. Women may be preg pregnant as a result of rape or incest facing poverty, perhaps there are health concerns for the mother or the baby, or maybe she just doesn't want to be pregnant. Her age could play a role, whether she's very young or older in life. Um, maybe she has absolutely no support, or maybe the pregnancy hinders her education or her career. When we think of all of these circumstances, we can ask ourselves, is a woman in that case desiring abortion or is she looking for a way out? From my experience from working for Lethbridge Pro-Life and speaking with many women, I can tell you that the majority is looking for a solution to these problems. And in that situation, abortion may seem like a way out. But will an abortion actually provide that solution? Will it make women unpoor? In case of, po in case of poverty, if she is being abused, will it stop the abuser? Or will it undo the trauma of a rape? Of course not. And perhaps you say, but it may not fix the problem, but it will make it easier for her to cope with. Perhaps that's why you support abortion in some or in all cases. Now, I would be willing to argue that for many women that is not true. Women have told us, and we hear that in public testimonies, that abortion is, is very invasive, is traumatic, and often perpetuates the problems that women face in our society. But even if abortion alleviates her burden, even if it does just that, it still doesn't follow that abortion should be sought as the course of action. Because if abortion directly and intentionally kills a human being, then no matter how difficult circumstances are, they don't justify taking the life of another. Imagine for a moment that the woman is not pregnant, but she has a toddler. And my question would be, would any of these circumstances be grounds for killing the toddler? If not, if not, why then would they be grounds for killing the preborn? And perhaps you would say because it's different, because the embryo or the fetus is not like the toddler. It's not a person. If that's your reaction, then the question is when does human life begin? Are the preborn potential people or are they people with great potential? So in order to answer that question, I have drawn a timeline to look at the science of fertilization. Let's say the person I'm talking to is 20 years old. Now we know that about 20 years ago, she was born. We know that about nine months before that, a process called fertilization took place. Now what do we know about fertilization or more specifically about the preborn at that moment? The first thing that we know is that she has her own unique genetic information which was determined when a sperm cell of her father and an egg cell of her mother melted together. The second thing we know is that she is alive. Science teaches us that um, living things 
reproduce, sorry, that living things produce living things, which is called the law of biogenesis. And because the sperm and egg were alive, she has to be alive as well. The third thing we know is that she is human. Science teaches us that living things reproduce after their own kind, so that species reproduce after their own kind. And because she has human parents, she is also human. Now maybe some of you say, okay, so if it's human and it's alive and you can determine it, um, that, that it's different from another kind of species, are you saying that the sperm and egg are human beings as well? Are they equal to the zygote? And the answer, of course, is no, because of the fourth thing we know. The fourth thing is that um, at that moment of fertilization, the preborn is whole. It is a whole human being, while a sperm and egg are human parts, very much like my hand and my hair are part of me. Um, sperm and egg are living human cells and part of a human, but the, but the preborn, even when they're very small yet, they're human holes. Someone who makes a very compelling case for the humanity of the preborn is Dr. Maureen Kondik in her study, When Does Human Life Begin? And she says that human life doesn't just begin at fertilization, it begins at the beginning of fertilization, which we know is a process that takes about 24 hours. And she argues that is the moment when each of us began our lives. Dr. Kondik explains that in order to distinguish cell types, scientists look at two different criteria, composition and behavior. And based on these criteria, we can determine that at sperm-egg fusion, we're dealing with something fundamentally different than we were dealing with before. The composition of the sperm is the DNA of the father. The composition of the egg is the DNA of the mother. But the composition of the zygote is the combined genetic material, which, which this being will have for the rest of its life and which determines all the things about us that are part of our genes. So by composition, the zygote is a different cell, but also by behavior. The, the inherent behavior of a sperm cell is to penetrate, of an egg cell to allow penetration, but of a zygote to prevent penetration. So it acts in a fundamentally different way than the sperm and egg. Because of this, we know that biologically and scientifically, we're dealing with a fundamentally different thing, in fact, a human individual, after sperm-egg fusion than we are before. I would now like to play a video to show you that the child growing in utero is not only a human being um, um, growing like that, but also I would like to show you what abortion does to that human being in contrast, letting you know that some of the images are graphic and that you're certainly welcome to look away if you want to.
Abortion supporter and feminist Naomi Wolf said, how can we charge that it is vile and repulsive for pro-lifers to brandish vile and repulsive images if the images are real? To insist that the truth is in poor taste is the very height of hypocrisy. So we've seen scientifically that the pre-born begin their lives at fertilization. We've seen that visually that abortion ends their lives. And what I would like to do now is make a philosophical case for their personhood. Some of you may say, even if biologically and scientifically the preborn are human beings, they're still not persons because they're different from the born. Of course, it's true that they're different from us. But the question we need to ask is, should our right to life or our personhood be based on our humanity or on the differences between us, such as how developed they are or on which features they have? So let's take a quick look at their differences, which we often summarize with the word sled. The preborn are smaller than us, they're less developed than us, they're in a different environment in their mother's womb, and they are dependent on her. If we think about size for a moment and we compare um, an infant to an adult, then, then it becomes clear very quickly that the same differences exist after birth. Would we deny the youngest and smallest of these three people her right to life simply because of her size? Of course not. Neither then should we deny the preborn their personhood because of their size. If we look at level of development, we know that there are born people who are less developed than others, but we don't deny them their personhood status. So in the same way, we should not deny the preborn their right to life simply because they can't do certain things yet. Of course, the preborn's environment is very different from ours because they're in their mother's womb. But for born people, we recognize that um, our personhood is based not on where we are, but on what we are as humans. Babies who are born prematurely generally can only survive in an incubator, and they would die outside of it. But we would never say that they are not human beings outside of the incubator. Just because we're not, um, just because we can't survive in certain environments as humans, doesn't mean our humanity ceases um, to exist outside of it. So the preborn need to be in utero to survive, but that doesn't mean that they are no longer human. So we shouldn't deny their personhood based on that. And finally, there's their dependency. About a year and a half ago, the world came to the rescue of these 33 men. When 700,000 tons of rock collapsed on the mine that they were working in, trapping them inside. They weren't denied personhood, but instead valued and respected, regardless of the fact that they were completely dependent on the outside world for survival. So if we valued and respected them regardless of their dependency, why shouldn't we value and respect the preborn even though they're dependent on their mother? These differences all boil down to one thing, and that is age. Because the, the preborn are smaller, they're less developed because of how old they are. They're in their mother's womb because in our species, when you're of that age, you need your mother's body to survive. And they're dependent because of how old they are. So we should ask ourselves, should our personhood and our right to life be based on our humanity or, or on how old we are? And so to make, which is something we can't change. So to make a quick analogy, um, we, just like we as born people can't change the color of our skin, the preborn can't change their age. So if it is wrong for whiter people to kill darker people for something they can't change, the color of their skin, why is it okay for older people to kill younger people for something they can't change, which is their age? I'm just wrapping up. 
If we look around in this room, we know that we all differ from each other in many different ways. The only thing we have in common is our humanity. And that is why we are considered equals with the same rights. So di those differences don't take away our personhood. They don't change our rights because our equality is granted by virtue of what we are as humans. So in the same way, personhood should be granted to the preborn because they may be different from us, but they are members of the same human family as you and I. Now we know from history, um, just to wrap up, that laws have erred before denying personhood status to those who are and were human people. Um, regardless of their humanity, slaves, as you see in, in uh, this court decision, Native Americans, women, and Jews were once considered non-persons by law. Thankfully, the time came that we recognized these errors, but today there is still a group of people in our society who is facing the same, resulting in their death. Now, based on everything that I have just presented to you, um, their, hum their humanity may not, may not always be denied, but their personhood is. And from what I have said, we know that that is done erroneously so. When pro-lifers claim that abortion kills children, we're not saying that we don't prefer abortion, just like you may not prefer a certain drink at today's lunch. We're making the objective claim that human life begins at fertilization and that our personhood should be based on nothing else than our humanity. It then only logically follows that just like other injustices of the past, abortion should be outlawed as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Micah. And now I'll call on Bryson Brown. I uh, feel a little diffident about being here today. Uh, when I was asked to do this, uh, I discussed whether or not I ought to agree to represent the pro-choice side at this event with my wife and my daughter, who are just over there. Uh, they both supported me, but they did think that a woman might be a better choice for the job. But apparently, um, having a man represent the pro-choice side and a woman represent what I will be calling the anti-choice side uh, was part of the plan for this debate, so I agreed to speak. Uh, but I want you to all understand that I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking for the women in my life, for my sister and my mother, for my daughter and for my wife, all of them strong-minded, pro-choice women. I hope very much that I don't disappoint them today. There are several points I want to make about this issue. Time won't allow anything like a full discussion of them, but I hope a brief sketch of each can serve as a useful overview of what a pro-choice position looks like and what its fundamental underpinnings are. The, the first and most important point is how personal the decision whether, to whether or not to continue a pregnancy really is. A woman's body, as I see it, is hers and hers alone. No one else has a right to control or to use it for their own purposes. So no one has the right to tell a woman she must end a pregnancy, and no one has the right to tell her she must continue it. The choice, like her body, is hers and hers alone. Carrying through a pregnancy is a physically demanding process. It poses real risks, even when excellent medical care is available. And it also includes either a long-term commitment to raising a child or a very difficult, life-changing decision to give up a baby that you've given birth to. 
Let's suppose that my opponent is right, that a zygote, an embryo or a fetus, really is a person. Even so, I say, no one, not even this person, has the right to occupy a woman's body against her will. I don't suppose anybody here would deny that I'm a person. I meet all of the standard, obvious, usual criteria. But if I needed a woman's kidney in order to survive, that wouldn't give me the right to have it. If she doesn't want to donate a kidney to me, she has the right to refuse, no matter how small the risk to her might be. Our democracy recognizes a very strong right to decide what happens to our bodies. Uh, one instance of that is that if I sign a contract with you to give you a kidney, well, that's actually an illegal contract here. And even if I could sign such a contract, given the common law tradition, the courts would never grant enforcement of that contract. They might grant you compensation if you paid me for the kidney in advance, but they would not force me to give that kidney up. I can't sign that right away, that right to control of my body. In fact, here in Canada, the default assumption is that refusal is the rule. If I don't sign that part of my driver's license that shows that I'm prepared to be a donor, the assumption is that nobody gets access to those organs, which is one reason why we have such a, a dearth of organs available for transplant. So, so long as life-saving transplants and uh, blood donations are voluntary, it seems to me that a woman's decision to continue a pregnancy also has to be voluntary, even if we say, yes, a fetus, an embryo, a zygote really is a person. My, my second point is that despite claims to the contrary, a zygote, a blastocyst, an embryo, or a fetus is not a person. I'm not just making a point about how we use language in this area. I'm making a point about a fundamental difference. Most importantly, a fundamental difference concerning consciousness or awareness. Personhood is a moral category, not a biological category, and it's a mistake to equate the biological category of belonging to being an individual of the species Homo sapiens with the moral category of being a person. A zygote is a clump of living cells with the potential to develop into a person. In fact, a zygote is a clump of living cells with the potential to develop into two persons, and sometimes two zygotes are clumps of living cells with the potential to develop into one chimeric person. So individualism is a little bit fuzzy at the early stages. Um, this, uh, let's see, yeah. Actually, being a person, on the other hand, involves certain capacities, minimally a capacity for awareness. But in the early stages of development, the brain isn't there at all, and that's what grounds the capacity for awareness. And in fact, the brain doesn't become anywhere close to capable of awareness until quite late in pregnancy. So I have a slide here on brain development. That's fairly complicated, but it's, it's, it's fairly easy to read, really. Uh, what we have here are uh, weeks of gestation. And across the top, we have different types of developmental processes that go on in the course of forming a brain. And you can see it actually continues postnatally uh, at the end. So some of these processes are still going on at birth. Now, some of the processes involved here are, well, here's Synapses, which are where brain cells connect with each other and actually turn a 
collection of nerves into a nervous system. You have to use the microphone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I need a different shaped room if I'm going to do it just with my voice. Um, so there are a number of processes listed there. A lot of them are essential to a functioning brain, a brain that's capable of sustaining awareness. And they begin, some of them around 10 weeks, neuronal migration. Some of them around maybe 15 weeks, electrical activities. Some of them a little later than that. Uh, myelination doesn't seem to start until just about 30 weeks gestation. Myelination, by the way, insulates nerve cells so that they can send signals efficiently. Fetal awareness, then, isn't possible past the point where a fetus is actually viable, when abortions are actually very rare and performed only because of serious health problems. Only 0.7% of abortions in Canada occur later than 20 weeks gestation. 90% occur in the first 12 weeks. There's nothing there by way of a functional brain that could sustain awareness at those points. So from my point of view, the idea that a fertilized egg counts as a person is so implausible on the face of it that I can't see how anyone could argue for it on other than religious grounds. But of course, if it's religious grounds that are underlying the position, that's a position that shouldn't be imposed on people who don't share those religious beliefs. Biology just isn't the guide here. Now, I want to change direction now and argue something else. Uh, something that doesn't have to do with whether abortion is right or wrong, because that isn't the only question on the table here if we're talking about laws and public policy. And that point is that outlawing abortion is worse than futile. Rates of abortion are not, in general, lower where abortion is illegal. The rate of dangerous abortions, on the other hand, is much, much higher. The worldwide rate of abortion is about 14 per thousand women of childbearing age. This almost exactly matches the rate of abortion in Canada, where abortion, of course, is legal. But abortion is illegal in many other parts of the world, even parts of the world where the abortion rate is quite a bit higher. Abortion's been practiced for centuries, even when it was very, very dangerous, even when there were no safe procedures anywhere in the world. Not safe by our medical standards, anyway. Many women are clearly willing to take serious risks to end an unwanted pregnancy. And changing the law isn't going to change that fact. So criminalization would be very bad for women's health. The unsafe abortion rate would increase, and unsafe abortions are a major cause of death and infertility. Rates of complications and death from abortion, thank you, Tess, are particularly high in Africa. They're also quite high in South America, where 95% of abortions are unsafe. There are only a couple of states in Latin America where you'll find... Uh, uh, abortions that are legal and safe. Uh, and, and with respect to social justice, it's worth pointing out as well that everywhere you go in the world, safe abortions are available to wealthy women. It's the poor who pay the price when abortion is made illegal. Now, a fourth point is a point about civil liberties, and that's this. Enforcing a law against abortion would require massive state intrusion into women's private lives. How else do you enforce a law that establishes a fertilized egg's right to implant in a woman's uterus and grow there for nine months? Many fertilized eggs actually do fail to implant. Many early pregnancies end in spontaneous abortion. Without close oversight, how could the police distinguish accidents from crimes? 
We can always already see tragic consequences of this kind of intrusion where abortions are illegal today. Not only are the abortions dangerous, but women who arrive in hospital seeking treatment uh, for bleeding or other complications uh, are subject to arrest and imprisonment. And so some don't go to the hospital or they don't go until it's too late to save their lives. The fifth point, there is a much better way to reduce abortion and to protect women's lives. We can ensure access to effective contraception. We can ensure clear, accurate sex education in the schools. We can establish strong social support systems that ensure that women who choose to have children feel that they can raise them. And we can provide access to abortion for those who, in the end, choose not to. Now, about half of U.S. pregnancies today are unintended. This is in a country with, you know, despite their problems with medical care, still pretty good overall access for most people. Studies show that lack of access to contraception, along with misuse and misunderstanding of contraception and serious misunderstandings about fertility, are large parts of the problem, large parts of the reason why this happens. Since abortion rates where, where abortion is legal and where it isn't are similar, it's pretty clear that avoiding unwanted pregnancies is by far the best way to reduce abortion rates, which are, by the way, notably lower than here in Western Europe where access to early abortions is easy and good sex education is more widespread. Finally, access to abortion obviously protects women's lives since the rate of dangerous abortions is much higher where they're illegal, and dangerous abortions cause tens of thousands of maternal deaths yearly around the world. Now, I want to move to another sort of point, and that's a point about the status of this debate and how it's handled by some participants. Uh, this is an observation concerning uh, Mikey's organization, Pro-Life Lethbridge, or Lethbridge Pro-Life, uh, and what I take to be their dishonest approach to one particular issue, the long-since-refuted link between abortion and breast cancer. And I want to put a fair bit of weight on it because I think this is a very revealing point. The Lethbridge Pro-Life website, Pro website promotes the myth that abortion increases the risk of cancer. Here's just a quote from the statement that they have. Studies show that women who have had an abortion have an increased risk of being diagnosed with breast cancer, one such study found that women who have had one or more induced abortions are at greater risk for breast cancer than women who carry their babies to term. They also note that women have an even higher risk if they've had their abortion before the age of 18 or past the age of 30. Well, that's a lot of information, and it's pretty scary information. But the U.S. National Institute of Health and Health Canada and Canadian and other medical bodies, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in the United Kingdom, Canada's uh, College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they all report, based on serious reviews of the scientific literature, that the evidence, viewed as a whole, shows no relation between abortion and breast cancer. Now, there's a researcher that's quoted on the site, um, on, on the pro-life site, the Lethbridge pro-life site, Dr. Janet Daling. Uh, who is quoted as saying that her research shows a strong link between abortion and breast cancer, and in a serious exaggeration that I hope Dr. Daling didn't actually commit, that her study's methods are sound and that its results are solid. I tracked down the research paper that this claim is about. There it is. 
Risk of Breast Cancer Among Young Women, Relationship to Induced Abortion, Journal of the National Cancer Institute, it's a 1994 paper, looks pretty serious. But citing this paper in isolation is pure cherry-picking. It's presenting one bit of science because you like the result and ignoring the rest of the science on this issue because you don't like the results you find there. Got to close? Okay. What this paper does is provide weak evidence that there might be a link. Its methodology isn't strong enough to do anything more. I'll talk to you about the methodology during questions, I guess. Um, you can contrast that with another study. This one, much, much better study, much larger population, prospective study, very clear results, no connection. And it's this and other studies that show there's no connection. And I think it's irresponsible for them to continue to pre present this information on their website. Thanks. So you've heard the pro and the con. We'll uh, welcome lunch now, and uh, we'll try to start sharp at one, which may mean that we're still uh, chomping a bit when we uh, get to discuss. So enjoy your lunch. <laughs>